I'm Dean Newland, and welcome to the Business of Intuition, where I coach, facilitate, train, and speak on the hard science and meaningful experience of intuitive leadership in business, so you can make better decisions, forge real connections, and creatively solve problems to amplify your impact and simplify your life. Welcome to the Business of Intuition. Tim Collins, in his book, Good to Great, references the idea that leadership has stages. For example, you can't be a leader of an organization unless you know how to lead a team. Conversely, you don't really find yourself being very successful leading a team unless you understand and have experience leading another person. And then, of course, if we are not able to lead ourselves and have self-awareness, uh, we're not going to be very good at any layer above us. And so this idea of leading oneself, understanding what makes us tick, is the nucleus for any sort of strong leader or leadership culture. And my next guest on the business of intuition has really built a practice around this inside-out leadership approach. And he believes, and I happen to share his belief, that we are actually in a habit of fear, and that fear is often that part of ourselves that keep us from being intentional, being creative, and creating effective connections with other people. So this talk today is all about breaking the habit of fear in order to create a culture of creativity and connectivity. Andy McDowell is an engineer by trade and a creative by nature. He is the founder of the entrepreneurial and small business coaching and consulting firm, Generate Your Value, and is the co-host of the Generate Your Value podcast. And he spent 22 years with the Boeing company where he always felt more like a life coach than a boss. In 2002, he began his journey into entrepreneurship within a corporation where he was asked to develop an aerospace design consultant business from scratch that would serve the global government market. And he has a bachelor's degree from Georgia Tech in electrical engineering and a master's degree in computer information systems from Georgia State. Naturally, his aviation work took him around the world and enabled him to work on high-profile projects such as preparing the Beijing and Sochi airports for their respective Olympic Games. Andy McDowell on the business of intuition. Well, Andy, great to have you on the show. And I guess we're getting ready here for the holidays. And I don't know where are you. I think you said you're outside of Atlanta up here in Bend, Oregon. It's snowing like crazy. So we're getting into the mood. And uh, I was th thinking about our conversation, you know, before we started recording. And it reminded me a meeting I had with the team where they were developing their value statements. And uh, it's a very brand new startup company. And the word love came up. And there was a conversation around, should we include love in our values? And is that important or not? And some people felt that it was, it was almost a misunderstood word or it was too, maybe in some ways, inappropriate that it's not business savvy to say that. And then we ended up, especially with the board chair, the board of directors saying, no, I think this is who we really are. We really should have that in our vernacular. 
And so I guess my question to you is, why is this concept around love, which we know what it is, it's a very personal thing. Why, do we, why should we be talking about it in business? And secondly, how can we do that? Well, I think we need to be talking about it within business because, yes, we have automation and other pieces that, that help us in the business, but the reality is it always, 90% or more of the time, encompasses human beings, right? And so when you have human beings involved, you're looking at the wants, needs, and desires of, of human beings in various aspects of their lives. So you have to bring love into it as love is the fuel, so to speak, for creativity and connectiveness. And because of connectedness, then teamwork. And you're going to row a hard road, so to speak, without bringing love into it in some respect or aspect within the business, whether it's a a value or part of your branding or whatever it may be, you're going to have to address it in some form or fashion. I get it. And I'm, I'm really just tickling out this conversation through our, com I understand what you're saying, but I wanted to ask it another sort of a question that maybe go in, goes in people's minds as they listen to this. You hear this idea like, you know what, you don't have to, to like the person at work. You just have to work well with them. Right. Do we, can, does that old phrase that we've heard over and over again, do you believe that's true or do we really need to get to the point where we have to like people and maybe even in some ways have to love people in order to be able to have that creative collaborative relationship? Well, I think at the very least you have to respect them, right? To say, hey, you're a human being, you have your own life, you have your own stuff that you're trying to deal with in your life, whether it be your work life, your home life, your parent life, you know, whatever it may be. And A, I acknowledge that. I have a little bit of empathy for what you might be going through. And I'm going to try and meet you where you're at is the phrase I like to, to use, right? I'm going to meet you where you're at. That doesn't mean I have to like you, but I wanted to at least have enough love for you to respect you and what you're going through. And how can we find a win-win in this? Where is that place on the map, so to speak, that we can find the win-win, even though I might not agree with the way you lead your life or other aspects of you, I can at least have enough empathy and respect for you to meet you where you're at, and let's try and get the job done here while we're here. Yeah. I often think that that comment that I've heard before, you don't have to like the person, you just have to get along with them, is sort of a cop-out and a way to be able to avoid some of the things that are difficult, you know, some of the conflict that comes up in interpersonal mm -hmm. relationships at work as a way of saying, well, we can't really tackle this trusting environment, this, these people that don't trust each other, this conflict, but at least we can tell them because we failed here, at least we can say, you don't have to love them, like them, but at least you can, uh, you know, work well with them. And, and I think it's sort of a putting the bar very, very low mm -hmm. uh, when we, when we say those kind of things. Um, you've talked about earlier around that you can't really develop a culture of love and this sort of respect and creativity unless you love yourself. You know, and that's another one of those sort of phrases that we hear in business that feels like to some a little woo-woo. You know, it seems a little bit like, all right, the 60s counterculture, right? Gotta love yourself. And I don't disagree. I don't I disagree with that, but I, I'm wondering how you get past that. I sometimes struggle even, I said struggle is not the right way. It's more educated. Like 
around the business of intuition, this podcast, and my beliefs around how intuition is a is a, a way to be able to open up to more creativity and connection, mm-hmm. getting it out of the closet and into the boardroom. But you mentioned it, people kind of think like, what? This seems a little woo-woo, Newland. What are you talking about? And so we're talking about self-love. I wonder if you get the same sort of reactions. And so if so, how do you work people into a, a mindset where they can really start seriously looking at that? Well, I think it's about creating uh, space for it, right? I mean, it, everybody's the CEO of your life. So what, what do you want to do with your life? And can you create an environment as a leader, you know, where you can shut the door with a person and create space for it if they want to go down that road? I mean, that's why, you know, I took the approach of being more of a life coach than, than a boss is, once again, instead of the peer-to-peer colleague relationship we just talked about. Now we're talking about a leader employee report, so to speak, sitting across the table from each other with the door shut and say, okay, I want to meet you where you're at. Where do you want to just talk about your career and business or do you want to talk about bigger things in your life or how, how you can maximize life for yourself? Where, where do you want to go with this? Cause I'll meet you where you're at. Mm-hmm. The door shut, just the two of us. And obviously we're going to do this in an ethical, ethical way and so forth. But I understand to find the win-win and try and maximize the value you can bring to the team and the organization. I'm going to try and invest in you as much as you invest in the company and I'll meet you where you're at. And how can I guide you, coach you, support you, be empathetic for you, whatever that you're going through that's, that's going to help you grow as an individual and a person. And yeah, one of my favorite phrases is no more job of leaders to build other leaders, even that means just to help them be a self-leader of themselves in their life, even though they they may not want to go after a title vice president or whatever. They just they're just happy to come in and contribute to the team, collect a paycheck and go home and have a great home life and enjoy their hobbies. That's great. That's fine. Yeah. How can I help right. you support you in that? Right. And so give me a what was that like if like a, a coaching conversation that you've had with somebody maybe that is that comes to mind when you're working with an individual who wants to work on themselves as a leader, as a person who, you know, respects and loves themselves such that that, that alone is a, a, a huge, maybe the most important step. And then, of course, then you have that to give to others, your team, your family and so forth. How do you go about doing that? I mean, I get the take people where they're at, but are there any sort of exercises or questions you ask people that gets them to think about and maybe reorient themselves around developing themselves and reconnecting to what they love about themselves? I guess my outcome of this is, are there any tips that people could listen to you right now? And go, you know, Andy, you're right. I think I should go do that. That's a great question. And that's a great exercise. What sort of things might come to mind that they would find of interest? So I always start with two things. One are the words um, intention and mindset. And around intention, I, I try to understand But I try to understand how it leads into mindset, right? So do you, the analogy I always use is, okay, you're in the ocean. 
Are you in a rubber dinghy with an oar or are you in a boat with a motor and a rudder? So do you feel like you're just in um, in the rubber dinghy, so to speak, with an oar in the middle of the ocean and life is just sort of pushing you around? You're just sort yeah. of going with the flow. Wherever the winds blow, that's where you're heading in your life and you don't have any kind of sense of direction because you haven't been introspective and thinking about what your purpose in life is or what you want to achieve out of your life. Or have you put thoughts to that and you... You claim your life. You feel like you're the CEO of your life, so to speak, and you want to be intentional in your life and make choices in your life around that. Then you're more in a speedboat kind of situation where hopefully you're filling your speedboat full of tank of love and you're setting course in a direction. And oh, by the way, as you go down in life and get more information about your life and learn have more life experiences, you can change that rudder slightly and head in a slightly different direction as you get more information and to be in that speedboat signifies to me that you have somewhat of a growth mindset where you want to be introspective think about how you can make better choices in your life hopefully where love and fear plays into your decisions and can move forward and if we can get you to that point if you're not there then we can take a, a tool that i use that took SWOT analysis tool, basic strategy, mm -hmm. strategy tool, strength, weakness, opportunity, threat. And I changed the word opportunity to love and threat to fear. Okay. So where do you feel like your strengths are in life? Where do you think you have rooms for improvement or weaknesses, whether it be value statements or skills or talents kinds of things. And then on the love side, where do you feel like you have passions? Where do you feel like are things you do in life that bring joy and happiness to your day and to your life. And let's put those bullets in the love category. And what might be some things you think you might want to go to explore to see if you enjoy them. Let's put those down too. Then in the business world with threats, you know, those are things that can be disruptors to our business. Whether it be in supply chain or with our customers or competitors or unknown competitors, you know, the business world we look at, but what holds us back in life is fear. So where, where do you have some fears in your life? What, what stops you from doing what you would like to be doing? Uh -huh. Keeps yeah. you in your comfort zone, right? And let's put those down and talk about ways that maybe we could reduce them, eliminate them, or, you know, maybe even turn them into a love. In some yeah. respects, but let's, you know, SWOT analysis in the business world is, is used to figure out where you are in the marketplace, where you are in the world, right? If you were to pull out the business map per se and say, where are we? Where's our starting point? Let's be honest with ourselves and put ourselves to, oh, we're here. Okay. But we'd rather be over here. What's it going to take strategically to get ourselves over there in various categories? And it's the same thing with with life now, here's our starting point. Now, where do we want to go in life? Uh -huh. And then you can start developing a, a life strategy for yourself on areas you want to go work on physically, spiritually, emotionally, whatever they may be to get you to where you want to be such that joy, happiness, and success shows up every day for yourself. Yeah. So yeah. you enjoy the journey of life as you're going on. It's not a destination. 
Joy, happiness, and success is not a destination. It's a state of being every single day. Right. So what do you have to do to to, to be able to enjoy that for yourself? And if you want to just talk about that career-wise, that's fine. Let's put that box around it, and that's where we'll have those conversations. But if you want to go outside of that, I'm open to that as long as it's you and I in the same room with the door shut. And Yeah. That's good. I was thinking about, as you were talking, um, a guy named David Rock, I think, who is a, I don't know, he started this whole neuroscience uh, leadership institute to develop something called STARF. And if you read through his work, you find out from a, a brain perspective, a neurological perspective, at least from his research, that we are sort of hardwired to be fearful in some ways, that there's I think his, his quote is that we, the brain will look at a situation or a person as being a threat, or one could say threat is analogous to fearful, five times more so than a benefit, or five times more than something we should be going to, which is sort of a, you know, a difficult kind of message to hear, but I understand it. My question, I guess, around that is, with respect to fear, do we need to address those fears and find out what the source is and kind of dig into and, and that analyze what this is all about? Or does the very act of going down the path of what makes us fearful make us more fearful? Well, I think I would answer that in two ways. It's certainly, if you dig, dig deeper and find the root of the fear, then you have an ability to and most likely it's going to come somewhere in your childhood, um, True. you know, address those and heal those wounds such yeah. that you can make a fear disappear for yourself. There's also the aspect of being comfortable with fear. You know, fear can be a, a marker, so to speak, for us as to, you know, where are we in our comfort zone? We have to get out of that comfort zone to have change in our life, right? And can you develop a mindset and a comfortableness to say, oh, and be introspective enough to be present enough to go, oh, there's fear. There it is. It just showed up. Okay. Yep. I acknowledge you. I see you, fear. I see you. Um, okay. I'm going to nuzzle up next to you and use that fear as a marker for mm-hmm. myself to say, here's, here's a spot I need to go work on, and I'm going to use courage to sort of work with it, push through but try some things maybe incrementally to help me work through that to, to the point that I almost developed a life of saying, I want to know where the fear is and I want to go work on it. And it, it may be its own little mini journey within the journey of life. And I'm just going to keep noodling and knocking away at it till I get to the point where I'm comfortable, but enough with it that it's, it doesn't disrupt me in my life. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely it's not gonna right. Be that stop. It's not going to be that stop. It might slow me down because I'm going to work on it on a little mini journey in life, but it's not going to stop me. Right. Yeah, you mentioned childhood. I, I feel strongly that some of the things we are afraid of today are habits of fear that were created when we were kids mm-hmm. based on an event that at the time we made a decision to be able to survive that event. Life is like this. Parents are like that. I need to be doing this, whatever that decision is. Uh And because they were probably emotionally charged situations, they became triggers 
and they became embedded in our psyche, so to speak. And then we can continue to replay them as we move forward in life and even as adults. And so I we were just talking about this yesterday with a group of people that because these were senior leaders with the title of leader, CEO, CFO, whatever the case may be, that others in their team might react to them because of their title. And that might re-stimulate something that has to do with authority that was probably what? many, many years ago that had yep. nothing to do with that person. But you just happen to represent that. You represent that teacher. You represent that bully on the playground or whatever that might be. But yep. we don't consciously know this. We just right. know that we don't like the boss, right? But these little triggers, I think, get re-stimulated. And unless we go back and go, what is that about? And what's that belief that maybe we don't need anymore now, but at least we can call attention to it so that we have a choice around whether to continue that or not. Yeah. Thoughts on that? Well, so the human brain is sort of made to protect ourselves, right? Right. And so there's that fight or flight kind of response that's a physical I'm in physical danger. I need to do something. There's fear that I might be physically armed. And that's not the kind of fear that we're really talking about here, but it's a safety mechanism, right? Now you take that to the emotional side. And you have a trauma of some sort where you don't feel emotionally safe. You don't feel emotionally loved. And the ego kicks in and starts creating behaviors, if you will, to sort of protect ourselves from that uh, emo perceived emotional danger, right. if you will. And that's what causes those triggers to be built in, in behaviors and patterns to, that are created to protect ourselves from an event that occurred in our life that gave us, made us feel emotionally unsafe. Yeah. And or so maybe keep, even physically. repeating those behaviors and those patterns and those triggers because of it. And if we don't go back to the beginning and start healing, forgiving kinds of actions for that initial trauma that created these patterns of behavior and triggers and so forth to, to protect ourselves from it, then we're just going to keep repeating those. And you as a leader, as you mentioned, the C-suite people don't, have no idea what that might be for their direct reports uh -huh. or other people within the organization. You got to be conscious of the fact that that might be an issue yeah, for a teammate. Absolutely. And Absolutely. How, how is it you might be able to change your leadership style a little bit or something or realize that may be an issue for a person and you might change the way you express it in words so it doesn't trigger them. Right. But right. if you don't have that, shut the door, have that conversation and create that emotional safety with a teammate where they'd be willing to talk to you, express to you that I felt this way when you said this and you're comfortable with that, you'll never know. Right. Yeah, I would almost uh, more if it's slightly by saying, what's your interpretation about what I said? It doesn't mean what I said is what I meant. It's just like, how did you hear it? And then when people start owning their interpretations, it doesn't right. have to be an accusatory comment. It's just simply like, and then you go, well, where did that, then, you know, individually right. you might go, well, where did that come from? How did I come up with that interpretation? Because it doesn't seem to max the behavior. Oh, oh gosh, this is something that gets, keeps getting re-stimulated. This is a habit of fear that keeps coming up over and over again. Why is that? 
But again, I don't think you can make those changes unless you're aware of it. So I understand that. Could I give you a go? Yeah. I give you an example, somewhat related example. In my own life at Boeing, I managed a remote office, and my direct supervisors, vice presidents, were always in Denver. Yeah. So I would get on uh, staff meetings and so forth where I was phoning in. And uh, in a performance review, my, my boss said, Andy, you don't speak up a whole lot in meetings, but when you have something to say, they're very profound and very impactful to the team, and I wish you would do it more. And I said, well, the problem I have is I'm remote, I'm on the phone, nobody can see me, and you, you can't see the fact my mouth had just started to move and engage when somebody else in the room speaks up and takes the talking space, if you will, in the meeting. Oh, you know, so the big light bulb went on in my, on my boss's head about that. She said, let's do this. Uh, whenever you, you want to speak, I want you to hit one of the buttons on the phone so it makes a noise. And then I know you have something to say and I'll clear the space to allow you to, to have input in the conversation. You know, it's something as simple as that. If you don't have that kind of yeah. openness and communication between the two of you, you know, I felt comfortable enough that I could speak up and say, I want to contribute more. But every time I open my mouth to try and say something, somebody's already jumping in because I'm the guy that's thousands of miles away on the phone. You can't see me opening my mouth to say something. Right. We don't have those nonverbal cues that says this is about ready to be spoken by this person. They know this yeah. before video happens, right? But yeah, right. So, Andy, back to Boeing again, though. Yeah, and Spudden and... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Saying it was just a slight change, just like maybe saying your words a little bit differently in a conversation. Now all I had to do was hit the button, and all of a sudden I was contributing a lot more to the team in the staff meetings because you had that simple conversation. Right. Understand what was going on. So I would, I, a final question I would have asked you before I get you to sort of share how people can connect with you. So Boeing, huge you know, multinational behemoth of a company. One could say that it almost has a government type of culture in some respects because so many of their contracts are government, right? You become <laughs> your client, right? And the red tape and the process and all of that stuff. And we've had some involvement in Boeing many years ago. And I know that we talked earlier about that as well. But how did you get from working at Boeing this major, you know, uh, aerospace behemoth to a coach that's talking about love. How did that happen? You see the flat forehead? Yeah, I see that. <laughs> For me, my head against the wall. I mean, that's why I'm out on my own now instead of going back to the corporate world because you're right, Boeing was, for all intents and purposes, a government, extremely bureaucratic. Yeah, company because of its size and magnitude and offices around the world. And, you know, the fortunate part for me, like I mentioned before, was I had a remote office where I sort of had some autonomy to do my own thing with my own team. And I had to, at times, play top cover, as we say, in the aviation world to sort of try and protect that little mini culture I had created in my 
office from all the bureaucracy and so forth. But I mean, I lost business because of that bureaucracy at times. My biggest angst in my business was contracts. And because of the size of the organization, the potential for going after a ton of money in a lawsuit, uh, in, in the contract world within Boeing, they would, the, the, the rule of law had to be either the United States or the UK. And so in my line of business on the service side within Boeing, dealing with governments, there were some governments by law, they couldn't do any contracts, but in the rule of law of their own country. And I, I had to walk away from a good bit of business because of that. You want to talk about bureaucracy. There was just no, that lots of hard conversations about bringing millions of dollars in contract to the business and you want to walk away from it. Uh, yeah. You're going to hold that accountable to me at the end of the year at the performance review when I'm bringing, <laughs> yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So did you, did you retire early? Did you decide, I want to jump ship from this organization and go do something else? What was it that no. kind of sparked your, your realization, like, it's yeah. time to do my own thing, and I want to do it around this inside-out leadership, this glove helps create creativity and connection? Right. Was there a, I don't know, a walk down to Puget Sound that made you go, I need to do this? What was it that made you happen to come up with this idea? So I wanted to do 30 years with Boeing and then do what I'm doing today part-time. Uh, mm -hmm. But I got laid off with thousands of other people because of the 737 crashes and that, ah, whole, okay. that whole crisis. So I said, okay, I'm going to go do this full-time <laughs> to finish out my working life. But the, the one aspect... Um, of my time at Boeing, I really loved was working with people. And I had a tremendous experience with an executive coach who turned my life around. Yeah. Uh, I had bad self-esteem, um, high school, college, early twenties, went through a lot of therapy and self-help and got, yeah. you know, a good bit of down the road doing that. But from a leadership perspective, she really helped me and turned on a lot of light bulbs and in my head about mentoring and coaching and I started getting a lot of requests from people to be a mentor within the company and I was around the world half the year just yeah. couldn't take on a lot of people but it's just I love those aha moments yeah. I get a lot of fulfillment from the aha moments and see people grow and change their lives and so forth and and so that's why I wanted to be my own boss I wanted to go out and do my own thing and, you know, have a legacy of creating great leaders right. out in the world that, that have done the hard work and are making po significant positive impact in people's lives. That's, you know, that's what I want my brand, so to speak, to be about. Yeah, that's great. Well, I love it. I think there is a, definitely a lot of aha moments in this conversation. And I, I appreciate your courage and your boldness to be able to bring the concept around inside out leadership and knowing oneself and loving oneself and bringing love into the conversation, uh, into the workplace that is typically not where we normally find those kind of conversations. And I think that's bold and I think that's, that's courageous. And I, and I thank you for that. Um, how can people, Andy, 
follow you, get to know you more, connect with you. Give us a little bit about that. So my website is www.generateyourvalue.com. That's my company name. It's also the name of podcast I do with a co-host where we talk about life, leadership, and business. And a lot of things we have spent the last half hour or so talking about on a regular basis. Episodes come out every Tuesday with a guest. We're in our third season. Uh, I'm in the midst of writing a book. Hopefully it'll come out first half next year. I'll probably be doing a probably be doing a TEDx talk next year too. Good. Do you have a working title for the book? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. But yeah, I can guarantee you fear and yeah. <laughs> intention and mindset and all those things that we talked about will be in the book. It's very good. It's, it's a book for in, young adults that are trying to find a life strategy and hopefully a business strategy uh, to be good. an entrepreneur. Excellent. Well, Andy, thanks for being on the show. It's been really great. Thanks for the invites, and uh, thank you for generating your value in this world. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to The Business of Intuition. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about Dean or Mission Facilitators Leadership, go to mfileadership.com. That's mfileadership.com.